Well, if you've got a Bible, open up to Zechariah chapter 5. Zechariah chapter 5. It's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. So if you start in the Gospels, find Matthew, flip back a few pages, you'll be in Zechariah. And this morning we're in Zechariah chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. We'll look at the whole chapter. It's page 746, if you're using one of our hardback Bibles there in the pew. It'll definitely be helpful if you've got the word open, so you can follow along as, as, as we move throughout this passage. Zechariah 5, 1 through 11. Um, I uh, am a Johnny Cash fan, at least a, a lot of his songs. Some of you may be a, a Johnny Cash fan. Let me start out reading some lyrics from a, from a Johnny Cash song. You may recognize it if, if you're a fan. This, this is what he says in one of his songs. He says, you can run on for a long time, run on for a long time, run on for a long time, but sooner or later, God will cut you down. Sooner or later, God will cut you down. Go tell that long tongue liar, Go tell that midnight rider, tell the rambler, the gambler, the backbiter, tell him that God's going to cut him down. Tell him that God's going to cut him down. Now, that's an intense song, isn't it? That's just a, a taste. There's more in that song. You probably won't hear words like that on the Christian radio station this afternoon, will you? But if you read the Bible this afternoon, you'd probably read words like that. So, so... Why, why is this the case? Why is it that God will one day cut his enemies down for, for their sins? Why is it that he'll punish them? And second, is that punishment, is that judgment a good thing? I think those are kind of the two main questions that, that our passage answers for us this morning. So hear the word of the Lord, Zechariah 5, 1 through 11. Zechariah says, again, I lifted my eyes and saw and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits and its width 10 cubits. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base." Okay, so, so why does God cut his enemies down for their sins? Well, well, that's our first point. It's because God takes sin seriously. That's what we're going to see in this first vision. God takes sin seriously. And then the second question we pose, is that a good thing? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's our second point. This judgment of sinners is good news. For God's people in particular, it's, it's good news. So, so our first point, and there's an outline on the back of the handout if that's helpful for you to keep an eye on. 
Our first point this morning is that God takes sin seriously. Look again at verse 1. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, a flying scroll. And he said to me, what do you see? I answered, I see a flying scroll. Its length is 20 cubits, and its width, 10 cubits. Okay, so God continues to give these visions to this prophet Zechariah. And we have two more of these visions this morning. This is the first one. God gives Zechariah this vision of a scroll, which in the ancient Near East, that's what folks would write on. So if they had to record something, when scripture was written, it's written on scrolls. So he sees this scroll. Okay, so, so what's written on this scroll? That's the purpose, is to have something written on it. What's written on the scroll? Verse 3 and following. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side, and everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. Okay, so there's, there's an angel here speaking on behalf of the Lord. That's what happens so far throughout Zechariah. These visions, they're interpreted, they're given, and they're interpreted through this angel speaking on behalf of the Lord. He tells Zechariah the scroll is a curse. And, and in particular, the scroll says, it's, it's a curse because of what it says. It says that, that the unrepentant sinners among God's people are going to be punished. That's the main idea. That's what this scroll says. They'll be cursed in that way. Now, now, why does God give Zechariah this vision? Well, it's to warn the people, right? It's a warning. He's reminding the people, hey, you're sinning in an unrepentant way, like your sin is not a big deal, but your sin is a big deal. That's why he's sending this scroll. And, and this is a theme through, throughout the prophets. In fact, it's why God raised up prophets in the first place. So God's people, just like us, tend to drift toward thinking, my sin's not really a big deal. My sin's not really a big deal. And so God raised up the prophets to say the exact opposite. No, your sin is a huge problem. It's a huge deal. But see, here in Zechariah's day, God's people are back in the promised land, and it's the same thing that's happening. So somebody would sin, and everybody else would kind of just turn a blind eye to it and just think, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes they'd even overlook it. It wouldn't even register to them. And, and we have that tendency too, right? Isn't it pretty easy for you to downplay your sin oftentimes? Isn't it easy? Now, not for your enemies. When you look at your enemies, it's easy to upplay the sin of your enemies, right? But for you, isn't it easy to downplay it? Or maybe people you care about, your friends and family, sometimes it's easy to, to downplay their sins as well. Well, this, this vision of the scroll, it's reminding God's people that God takes sin seriously. And not only does he send this scroll, you know, we'd gather that just from, from what he said so far. Oh, a scroll is sent. It says that God's going to judge his people for their sins. Okay, got it. He takes sin seriously. But then there's these details in this vision that ratchet it up, that show us even more so, oh, he really does take sin seriously. So the first detail is how big the scroll is. This didn't stand out to any of us because we don't measure things in cubits. But in verse 2, we're given the, the dimensions here in cubits. But, but I'll just tell you, this scroll, it's 33 feet by 16 and a half feet. It's pretty big. So we moved into a new house. We did a lot of measuring. Praise the Lord. There was nothing we had to move in that house that was 33 feet by 16 and a half feet. So it's, it's a huge scroll. 
And again, that kind of, that kind of thing can happen in a vision. There's normally that sort of uh, that sort of uh, uh, language that's used in the the visual imagery. So it's a huge scroll, and that's because God wants everyone to see it, right? You you don't put something on a billboard if you don't care about people seeing that thing. No, as you drive down the road, every billboard you see, it's because somebody who put in the money to put that thing up on the billboard, they think, I want people to see this thing. That's the same thing with the Lord. So the scroll is huge because God takes sin seriously. Second detail, you probably noticed, this huge scroll is flying. It's flying. Verse 1 calls it a flying scroll. And it's flying because the message on this scroll is sent out by God for everybody to see it. So this is where this, this flying scroll has a leg up on the billboard. The billboard is relying on people going past it, and it's only gonna reach people that drive past it. This flying scroll gets sent out, transmitted, right? It's being broadcast. This message about the people's sin, this is a message God is, is pulling all the stops. To, to get it in front of people. And again, that's because God takes sin seriously. And he doesn't just take big sins, quote unquote, big sins seriously. No, he takes all sin seriously. So in these verses, he gives Zechariah two particular examples of sin. You probably saw them when we read through it. Two particular examples of sins that his people had been committing. And the thing you'll notice is that neither one of them looks particularly egregious. Right? It doesn't look like a showstopper, like a, a big, huge sin. Look at the sins he mentions. Verse 3. Then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. Okay, so he mentions stealing. He mentions swearing falsely, which, which is lying. And again, what stands out is, is the nature of these sins. These aren't the big ticket items that we might expect. If God's sending out a scroll, this huge scroll to travel through and point out these particular sins, you might think, oh, I bet the sins that are going to be listed are maybe idolatry, you know, trading in God for fake gods or murder or adultery or, or insurrection, you know, against the king, some of these big ticket items. But God mentions stealing and lying. And just so we're clear, the kind of stealing he's talking about, it doesn't look like it's breaking into somebody's house in the middle of the night and, and taking things. No, it looks like the kind of stealing he's talking about is the kind that happens when somebody takes advantage of somebody else who's not quite as powerful as they are. So the, the way, the thing that I worry about every single time I go to an auto mechanic, because I am at their mercy, because I know nothing about cars, in that situation, it would be easy, I assume it's happened in the past, for a mechanic to just, you know, take, take whatever they want from me because I don't know any better. That's the kind of stealing it looks like was happening in the promised land at this point during Zechariah's ministry. It wasn't somebody breaking into somebody's house, taking their stuff. It was somebody taking advantage of somebody that was less powerful than they were. Listen to what the Lord tells his people a few pages over, chapter 7, verse 10. He sort of gives us a window into this sin more particularly. This is the kind of thing that was happening at this point in Israel's history. Chapter 7, verse 10, God says, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the traveler, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. 
So you see, it looks like that's the kind of thievery that was happening. The more powerful folks taking advantage of the less powerful folks in material ways. They're, they're, they're ending up with more themselves, the powerful, because they're taking advantage of the less powerful. And, and it, it looks like that's the kind of stealing that is taking place here, here in our passage. And the lying looks like it's connected to the stealing. So chapter 7, verse 9, just a verse before what I just read. Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another, and then do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. So, so some of God's people, they were making false claims, false judgments in order to take advantage of those who were, who were less powerful. And God is saying to the people, stop committing these kinds of sins. Repent. Turn from these sins. And it's, it's kind of a good exercise. So think about it this way. So he sends this giant scroll to work through all the homes of Israel. Okay, so if God tonight sent a giant scroll into your bedroom and there's a sin that's written on it, stop doing this thing. Scott, repent. Turn from this sin. What sin do you think would be written on there? Or you could put two. That's what happens here. What two sins would God write on there? What are two sins that you think, yeah, this is something that the Lord would press home to me? Two things for me to, to turn from. Well, here for Israel, it's lying and it's stealing. Now, no doubt these are sins. You know, lying, especially when it's tied to the Lord's name, lying is sinful. Obviously, being deceptive to get something you don't deserve from somebody else unfairly, that's a sin. But again, these aren't murder. This isn't the worship of idols. And yet, these two pretty run-of-the-mill sins are enough for God to bring his judgment. Verse 4, I will send it out, the scroll. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. It shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So this vision is saying, because of the sins, these sins of the people, the vision is the scroll goes into the house, it says that they're guilty, and then the house is destroyed, the whole house. The wood part, the stone part, everything, it's destroyed. It's knocked down, presumably with these sinners inside. So God takes sin seriously. He takes sin seriously. Now, the question for us is, do we? Do we take sin seriously? Do I take sin seriously? Or oftentimes, do we just think it's not a big deal? Or even worse than that, sometimes do we just overlook it? It's not even a blip on our radar. We think it's just not that big of a deal. And here's one way I think we can see ourselves minimize it. So you might think to yourself, no, I think my sin's a big deal. I think I recognize my sin and I see it as a, a big deal. But there could be some tells. You know, if somebody plays cards and they're bluffing, sometimes somebody will have a tell. Something you can see they do where you're like, oh, okay, they don't really have good cards. They're, they're pretending. I think there's a tell that shows up in us there's many of them, but I, I think this is one where we can, we can see, oh no, I do minimize my sin. I don't think it's as important as, as I should see it. And I think it's anytime there's a passage in the Bible we read about God judging sin and it feels too harsh to us. I think anytime that happens, that's a tell that we're minimizing the significance of sin. We don't see sin as important as it really is. So I'll give some examples. When we see God expel Adam and Eve from the garden because of 
just eating that fruit that God told them not to eat. And so, as a result, death comes into the world, and they are put out of the garden. We might be tempted to think, man, isn't that a little bit much? Isn't that a little bit over the top, God? And see, when we have that instinct, that's because we don't see sin as significant as it is. Or Genesis uh, 6, when we see God, uh, or Genesis 8, 9, when we see the flood. God sends a flood to kill every human, every man, woman, child, and living thing, except for Noah and his family and the animals on that ark. Sometimes when we read that, I think sometimes we can think, oh, isn't that over the top? Isn't that a little too much? Or in Leviticus 10, when we see God destroy, sends down fire and destroys two of Aaron's sons because they offered a sacrifice that wasn't the right way to offer a sacrifice. God had told his people how to offer, offer a sacrifice. They do it a different way. It's called an unauthorized sacrifice in, in Leviticus 10. God sends fire. It kills them. Or when we see Israel commanded to destroy a nation that had made itself an enemy of the Lord, or the fact that hell lasts for eternity. Maybe if I didn't get you with any of the other ones, I bet this one, at least sometimes you felt the pinch of it. Hell for eternity? Lord, isn't that a little bit too much? So when we wince, when we read about God's judgment in Scripture and we, we wince, here we might do it. God, you're, you're going to judge these folks, destroy them simply for lying or stealing? When we wince like that, I think it's because we don't take sin seriously enough. But see, God takes sin seriously. And let's be reminded really quick why it is such a serious thing. It's a serious thing because our creator made us, we understand that, God made us. He made us for the sole purpose of having a relationship with him where we live life with him the way that he wants us to live life with him. That's why he created us, was for that sole purpose. But see, when we sin, even if it's a small sin, when we sin, we completely turn away from that purpose, at least for a moment. 180 degrees the other direction. So, so think about it this way. It's kind of like the policeman who six days a week is serving people and protecting people, but then one day a week goes in and holds up the bank, right, at gunpoint and steals money. That's particularly egregious, isn't it? Because he's, he's doing 180 degrees different from the thing that he's supposed to do. Or it's the mother who is, is supposed to take care of her child but then for a day just abandons her child, just leaves the baby and goes and does her own thing, right? 180 degrees different than what she's supposed to do. It's the airline pilot who says, you know what? The second half of this flight, I'm not going to fly this plane. I'm just going to do my own thing, right? It's 180 degrees different from what they're supposed to be doing. That's us when we sin. And that's true whether we kill someone or whether we just take advantage of somebody for $5. That's us turning away from the Lord's purpose for us. Sin is serious. And so God takes sin seriously. And again, the question is, do we? So, so think about this question. Does my sin bother me? That's another good question to ask. Does my sin bother me? When you realize you have sinned, does that bother you? Listen to the way that the, that Puritan pastor, John Owen, that book that I commended earlier, listen to the way he says it. He says, when a man can, without bitterness, swallow and digest daily sins, that man is being hardened 
by the deceitfulness of sin. So that's a question for us. When you sin daily, and we all do, when you sin daily, how do those sins taste to you? Because there's basically three options. One option is they taste good. So the pizza that I ate last night, later than I should have eaten pizza, tasted good. That's one option. Your sin tastes good. Another option is maybe you don't taste it at all. So sometimes it's a great situation when there's medicine you have to give your kids. You can just put it in applesauce and it doesn't have any taste, right? That's a good situation. But, but neither one of those is the way our sin is supposed to taste us. It's supposed to taste bitter. You ever try to take a Tylenol and you didn't get it down the first time? That's what it's supposed to be like for us with our sin. When we digest it, it's, it's bitter. We're supposed to take sin seriously. So let's think of, of a few ways how we can try to take sin seriously as a church. And then we'll think about individually, but, but as a church, as members of Cornerstone Baptist Church, well, one way is by being sure we're preaching about sin when it comes up in the Bible. We want to preach about sin when it comes up in the Bible. That's one of the reasons why we just preach through Bible books. So we don't do it topically where we just say, okay, we're going to preach on God's love this week. We'll preach on forgiveness next week. And then we just draw verses from a bunch of different places and pull together something. No, that, that can have its merits. The Lord uses that. But we think a better, at least regular diet of preaching is just to pick a Bible book and just preach through the whole thing. Because what it means is you're going to have to preach on sin. You're going to have to preach on the hard things, not just the easy things. So that's one way that we can take sin seriously as a church is be sure that in our preaching, we continue to preach on sin when it comes up in the Bible. But another way as a church we can take sin seriously is by encouraging holiness in one another. Even more specifically, pointing out sin to one another as we need to. Like we agree to in, in our church covenant, we say we will exercise an affectionate care and watchfulness over each other and faithfully admonish and entreat one another as occasion may require. We want to be sure to do that. When we see a fellow brother or sister in ongoing unrepentant sin, we want to point that out in love, in gentleness, but, but we want to point that out. It's a way for us to take sin seriously. Another way is, is when you pray for your fellow members, pray they would turn away from sin more and more often. This is so great. I don't know. I think it's something about the culture that we have. In this, I will say it's, it's a little bit unique to the South, but this idea where when you pray, it needs to be a long prayer. Even if nobody else is listening, even if you're just praying in your head, God, what am I going to pray for this person? I can't pray until I have these four things to pray for. Or I can make it a long prayer in my head. That, that's not true. So the Bible doesn't say that, right? So let me give you a great prayer. If you only prayed this prayer for your fellow members for the rest of your life, there's other things you should pray for, but this would be as good of a prayer as any. Just when you pray for me, for example, say, Lord, keep Scott from sinning today. Keep Scott from sinning. Keep him from sin. That is a good prayer. That is a good prayer. It'd be a great prayer for you to pray for fellow members. Okay, but, but how can we grow as individual Christians in taking sin more seriously? There's lots of things we could say. Let's just focus on two things. First of all, Think often about God's goodness. So if you want to take sin seriously, I don't think you should start with sin. I think we should probably start with God. 
think about God's goodness. Because the more we understand God's goodness, the more we'll understand the serious nature of transgression against him. You've probably heard stories about somebody that grew up in sort of a dysfunctional family, but they didn't know it was dysfunctional because that's all they knew. That's the family they grew up in. But then as they get older and they see other families, they realize, oh, you know what? My family was a messed up family. They see the dysfunction more and more clearly as they see something to compare it to. Well, well, that's the same thing with God's goodness. As we study God's goodness, we'll come to see how bad our sin really is. So think about God's goodness in order to take sin seriously. But second, get in the habit of grabbing your sin quickly. A hard thing to do, but, but if we can do it, it's so valuable. So when you sin, try to recognize it as quick as you can. Oh, you know what? I just spoke harshly to that person. Or I just was jealous in my heart. Or that thought I had was envious. You know, say that to yourself. In your head, say, just like I just said, that thought was envious. I just had it. Lord, that was envious. And then be sure to ask God's forgiveness. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for that sin. I sinned against you. Forgive me for it. And then make, make the conscious decision to want to turn from that sin in the future. Just say to yourself, I don't want to sin in this way anymore. I don't want to dishonor you, Lord, in this way. And then finally, pray for God's help that more regularly you could turn from that sin. That's what I mean by saying grab onto it quickly. Grab onto your sin quickly. We want to take sin seriously like the Lord does. So this giant scroll flying through the land and the judgment it brings, it reminds us how seriously God takes sin. And in fact, God takes your sin so seriously that he sent his son to die for it. That's where we see at the most God taking sin seriously. So remember in verse three, God calls the scroll, he calls it a curse because it's gonna bring judgment on the people's sins. Well, Jesus underwent a curse. Galatians 3.13, we heard it a few months ago, preached through it. Here's what it says, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So Jesus took our curse, the curse on that scroll that flies through your house, and because of your sin, you deserve for your house to be flattened because of God's word. Jesus took that curse on himself for us. So to use the vision from this passage, it's like God's word, the scroll flies into to your house and you're about to be judged. And then Jesus stands in between you and that scroll. He stands in between you and God's judgment. And he let himself be cursed as if he had violated God's law. That's what he was doing on the cross. If you're a Christian, Jesus took your curse for you. So you can see how seriously God takes sin. He, he takes it seriously enough to send his own son to be cursed because of it. And listen, for us as Christians, the more serious we see our sin, the more love we will have for our Savior. The more serious we see our sin, the more love we'll have for our Savior. And, and if you're here and you're not a Christian or you don't know what you think about Jesus, the call of this passage is for you to take your sin seriously. Because the thing is, the world is regularly going to tell you that you don't really have a sin problem. You're not that bad. Your sin isn't a big deal. And in fact, internally, that'll happen too. You'll try and justify yourself, think you're pretty good. But see, that's not true. 
And God's the only one who's actually honest with you and honest with us. He tells you, he tells us that we're sinners. He is sending you this scroll right now as you hear this message preached from his word. And, and isn't that gracious of him? He's so gracious to point that out to sinners. In fact, out of love, God communicates the truth that we are all sinners and we all need a savior. He, he communicates that to the world actually in three different ways. So let's just think about how God is so gracious for a second. It's kind of like if somebody sends you a text message and an email and a letter in your mailbox because they want to be sure that you hear this message. Well, God communicates the truth about the gospel. He communicates it through the natural world around us. That's the first way that God sends this message. So the scroll gets sent throughout the whole land so everybody sees it. He does that today through creation, the inanimate creation that's all around us. Romans 1.29 talks about that. The creation shows people there's a God. This is the kind of God he is. You need to be made right with this God. He does it through the creation. He communicates this truth, second, through the individual conscience, that instinct that every human has, even if they're not a Christian, of right and wrong. It's because we're created in God's image. He sends us that in part so that we will know him, know that we need to pursue him, know that we're sinners. But then most particularly, third way, he communicates it through his word, the Bible. He communicates it through the scriptures. Look again at what Zechariah is told about the warning in his vision. Verse 3, then he said to me, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. He sends it to everybody. Most of us got that test warning this past week. For somebody like me with a flip phone that doesn't know many you know, technology things anyway, really weirded me out. Most of you, it probably weirded you out, that test warning that came through on, on all of our phones. Well, God sends every human being a real warning, and he sends it in these three different ways to be sure that he's getting everybody's attention. That's because God is really loving. Isn't that incredible? He's so gracious. He's so gracious. He sends his message out. He tells the world about our sins so that we would run to Jesus and be saved by trusting in Jesus' blood. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, your gracious creator, take him up on this offer. Have your sins covered by running to Jesus and, and trusting in him. Talk to me about that. Let's have a conversation about the good news of the gospel. It really is our only hope. But God will undoubtedly judge sins. And that's what this vision of the flying scroll is, is, is meant to make so clear. Verse 4, And I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and stones. So God takes sin seriously. But again, the second question is, but is that good? Is it a good thing that he takes sin seriously? Seriously enough to judge it? This is our final point this morning. This judgment is good. And in particular, it's, it's good for God's people. Look at the next vision Zechariah is given, verse 5. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that's going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted. And there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. 
Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women came forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they taking the basket? He said to me, to the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Okay, so this is another kind of wild vision, right? So we've got this basket. It's being carried away out of the promised land. There's a woman who's been put in custody in this basket and a big weight laid on top of it so that she can't go anywhere. And then it's taken away. Okay, so, so what's it mean? Well, the angel's really, really clear. Some of these visions, we have to do some, some work to connect the dots. This one's pretty clear. He tells us what the main symbol is. Verse six again. And I said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that's going out. He's going to tell us what the basket is. He said, this is their iniquity, synonym for sin. This is their iniquity in all the land. So all the land's sins are this basket. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this, this woman, this woman is wickedness. Okay, so that's what the basket and the woman represent. They rep represent sin, all the evil, all the iniquity all the disobedience in the land among God's people, they're symbolized here with this basket and this woman that's in the basket. And again, there was a lot of sin. God's people, they were in the habit of downplaying their sin. We just looked at that. And so they, they get sort of sin piles on top of one another. Their sin has just grown. And remember, the, the sins highlighted in the previous vision were sins of lying and, and taking advantage of the less powerful among God's people in order to steal from them. Well, the symbolism in this second vision, it really fits with those sins. I'll tell you how. So that word you see there in verse 6, basket, the word we've been using, that's actually the Hebrew word ephah. You might remember that word. Ephah is a measurement. In particular, in ancient Israel, it was a measurement for flour and for, for dry goods, for grain, other things. And, and people who bought or sold flour grain, they, they'd keep a ceramic container or a basket for measuring those items. So an ephah is a measurement. We think it's about seven gallons. So they would, instead of saying, oh, there's a gallon of flour, they'd say, oh, there's an ephah, seven gallons. It was a measurement. But, but the thing is, to buy these things from one another and to sell them, they developed a container that was enough for an ephah. Again, we think about seven gallons. And then they would just scoop it up in that. And so the container became synonymous with the measurement. So if somebody said to you, hey, where's your ephah? You would pull out that basket or that ceramic container. People would carry it around. But here's what they started to do. People are sinful and we're clever. You add those two things together and that's not good. Here's what people would do. The ephah that they would use to buy stuff from other people, they would make it bigger than a standard ephah. So what they would do is they would dip it in the flour and then they'd, they'd level it off and they'd say, okay, let me pay you for an ephah of flour. But really they knew they had made that basket bigger. So they were getting more. Or if they were selling it, they would do the opposite. They'd say, oh, here, use my ephah. Let's measure it out for you. But they'd made it smaller so that they had to part with less flour than what that person was giving them money for. So see, in this situation, lying and stealing are coming together to take advantage of those folks. Well, in this vision, that ephah, that basket, as it's translated there, that's the container in which the Lord is taking all of the sin and disobedience and evil out of the promised land. That irony is pretty great, isn't it? 
The container he's taking the, the sin and evil out of in was the very container that they used to, to perpetrate that evil. But, but there's a few important details we should notice about the vision. And the first is what's on top of the ephah. What's on top of the basket? Verse 7. And behold, the leaden cover, so a cover made of lead, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So all the sin and iniquity in the land is put in that basket, and then this heavy cover is put on top to hold it in. So the, the sin, it's personified as this woman sitting in the basket. And, and during the vision, she tries to get up. The angel pushes her back down, puts the lid on top of her. It's sealed shut. So that's the picture. All the sinfulness in the promised land, all that sin around God's people, it's put into the container and, and then it's sent away. Verse 9. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Okay, so in this vision, you've got these two women. All the sin is there in the basket, and the woman trapped in the basket. It's sealed shut. They're coming to, to take it away. And Zechariah, he asks where they're taking it, because they're, they're, their wings are compared to storks' wings. The stork was a migratory bird, so, you know, it would fly away for different seasons. Looks like maybe that's why he's asking. But he asked the question, verse 10, Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? So where's all this sin going? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Now that place, Shinar, that might sound familiar to you. That's where the Tower of Babel was built. You remember that? They find a plain, a level plain in the land of Shinar. That's where they build the Tower of Babel. It's the land that would become Babylon. So the Tower of Babel, Babylon. So before there was Babylon, there was this land of Shinar, and that's where they build the Tower of Babel. And then that place becomes Babylon. Well, that's where God's people had, had recently been freed from exile. They were in exile for 70 years in Babylon. So, so for the evil of the promised land to be taken to Babylon, the place of God's people's enemies, and for it to be called Shinar, to remind them of the Tower of Babel, which was a real low point for humanity, as humans try to take glory from God and give it to themselves. That's a perfect spot, isn't it? For all of this sin and transgression to, to be taken. But see, the main idea these details are getting at is that the sin and evil put into this basket, it's not going to escape. That's the main idea. It's not going to escape. The Lord has contained it all. It's not going anywhere. And it's never, ever coming back to the promised land. That's the main idea here. All of these enemies will be taken away. And what we've got here in Zechariah 5 is that vision. God permanently taking all sin far away from his people. And that's part of the good news of the gospel. It's actually a necessary element of the good news of the gospel. God says the same thing with different imagery back in chapter 2, verse 5. We saw this a few weeks ago. He's talking about the future heavenly city. He says, and I will be to her a wall of fire all around, declares the Lord. So God will put all of his enemies outside of the city, and then he will protect his people from those evil things. And we've read about this same theme in the New Testament already several times. 
in the gathering this morning. So listen to part of the congregational reading again that Tim read. Revelation 21, 27, speaking about heaven, God says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So everything unclean and detestable and false is put into that basket, taken outside of the heavenly city, and it's never coming back in. Here's part of the New Testament reading that Sam read from Luke 16. Remember, this is Abraham. He's in heaven. He's talking to the rich man who's in hell. This is what he says, Luke 16, 26. Abraham says, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. So same picture, right? All transgression and evil and sin, all enemies of the Lord, they'll be put in that basket and carried far away from the heavenly city and they're never gonna be able to come back. And see, that makes sense because how can the inhabitants of a place experience comfort if they know that there are bad guys in the city? So just think about it. If you went on vacation with a big group of friends and you knew all of those people, think about sort of the comfort you feel being in that house at night. You don't have to worry about your stuff. You don't have to worry about your kids. But let's say you're in a house full of people and you find out one of these people is a convicted felon in this particular way, or maybe they're a thief. Well, then all of a sudden you're on edge. You can't be comfortable. You can't sort of have that joy that the Lord intends for us to, to have that kind of peace. Well, heaven can't be peaceful and joyful unless all sin is put outside of the walls. It, it only works if in the words of our passage, iniquity and wickedness are put in that basket, covered with lead and carried away, never to come back. So you can see how God's judgment of sinners is, is good news for his people. The new heavens and the new earth, it's good because there's no sin inside the walls. You'll be able to leave your doors open all night. Zechariah chapter 8 uses the picture of the heavenly city being a place where children will play in the streets. We have young children. I'm telling you, only if something has gone horribly wrong are our children playing in the streets. But in the new heavens and the new earth, that's how safe the place will be. It's entirely safe and peaceful and good because all the evil we've experienced in this world will be taken far away from it. But see, as we close, the incredible part is what it took on God's part to get that sin taken away from us. Listen to what we're reminded about in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 11. Talking about the animal sacrifices under the old covenant, the author of Hebrews says this, for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, their bodies are burned outside the camp. So you might remember this. Those animals, they're sacrificed, they're sacrificed on behalf of the people. So in God's eyes, that animal, that bull, was acting like a sinner. That's why it had to give its life. And then once its blood is spilt, its life's taken from it, they can't leave that carcass inside the city. That carcass is cursed because it's like that bull is the sinner. So the bull's taken outside the city for it to be burned. It's exiled. It's put away. It's like it's being put in that basket and carried away from the heavenly city. Listen to the next verse, Hebrews 13, 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate 
in order to sanctify the people through his blood. So on the cross, Jesus suffered the exile that you and I deserve. He was taken outside the city of Jerusalem to the cross. You remember that? The cross wasn't in the walls, it was outside. He was taken outside the city of Jerusalem to the cross. And and that sending away, that was just a picture of the spiritual sending away of his father turning his back on Jesus because of our sin. Jesus was being treated like the sinner that you and I are. So see the vision in our passage of the basket of wickedness being carried away from the promised land on the cross, Jesus put himself in that basket. He was exiled. He was taken away from God's blessing and from God's presence. So, so really the most incredible thing about all of this isn't that God will send sin outside the promised land. It's that he sent his son away from the promised land to do it. Isn't that incredible? What good news, what gracious news we have in the gospel. And if you're trusting in Jesus alone for your salvation, then Jesus took your sin and he held it in that basket as he traveled outside the promised land. He took God's wrath on our behalf. And because of what Christ did on your behalf, you'll one day be welcomed into the heavenly city where all sin has been banished forever and ever. Verse 7, And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked to me, Where are they taking the basket? And he said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. Let's pray together. Father, we are so thankful. We know that we don't deserve any of this. We, we don't deserve it. It could have been part of your plan for us to simply get to know you while we're in this life, and then we die, and then we go to judgment after that. Or we get to know you during this life, but then we die, and then maybe we're just extinct. We just no longer exist. Or it could have been your plan for, for this life to go on forever, for eternity, with us remaining in this sinful body, with sinful enemies around us, and the devil prowling around us. And we just go through this for eternity. You chose none of those options. You chose one that is so much more uh, gracious than we could imagine and than we deserve. And that is that one day Christ will return and he will take us to this heavenly city where there is no more sickness or sadness or death ever again. It's all carried far away, and it will never return. Father, we are so thankful. Please turn our eyes toward that future reality. When things are hard in this life, remind us that that's where we're headed. Father, when we're tempted to choose our sin in this life, remind us it's not worth it. That we're longing for for your reality, Father, and your place under your rule fully for all eternity. Father, we're so thankful for these visions. We pray that they would become larger in our heart for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.